Support for today's podcast is brought to you by FS Investments. Finding income for your clients is tough. FS Investments makes it easier by designing solutions that help investors reach their income goals and secure their futures. FS Investments never settles, so advisors and investors won't have to either. Visit fsinvestments.com slash deadcelebrities and discover what it means to never settle. This is not an offer to buy securities. Investors are advised to consider investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. Welcome to the Dead Celebrities Podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenick. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Dead Celebrity Podcast. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning catastrophes, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their very core basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. Our guest today is Amy Castoro. Amy is the president and chief executive officer of the Williams Group. For eight years, Amy has specialized in preparing high net worth families for the next generation to successfully transfer family wealth and values for a sustainable legacy. Amy brings more than two decades of experience in developing leadership competence, aligning ambition with purpose, and increasing authentic communications and productivity. Amy's experience with the Walt Disney Company, the Deco Corporation, and Grant Thornton Management Consulting provides her with a strong foundation of leadership and organizations. Thanks for joining us today, Amy. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So the subject of today's podcast is the Spelling family, and particularly we're going to be focusing on father and legendary television producer Aaron Spelling and his daughter and somewhat less than legendary Beverly Hills 90210 and reality TV star Tori Spelling. So Aaron Spelling, as mentioned above, is the most prolific television writer and producer in U.S. history with 218 producer and executive producer credits. His works include the TV series Family, Charlie's Angels, The Love Boat, Heart to Heart, Dynasty, Beverly Hills 90210, Seventh Heaven, and Charmed. He also served as producer of The Mod Squad, The Rookies, and Sunset Beach. He died in 2006 from complications from a stroke and had also lived with Alzheimer's disease for several years before his death. In 2009, Forbes ranked him the 11th top-earning deceased celebrity. One of the many careers Aaron helped launch was that of his daughter, Tori, who was cast with clearly no nepotism involved at all as Donna Martin in Beverly Hills 90210. She's gone on to a several decades-long career in television and film, notably starring in a popular reality show with her husband, Dean. She's also written six books. Despite all that success, and I'm doing air quotes as hard as I can right here, Tori has continually battled money troubles due to poor investment decisions and her lavish lifestyle. To her credit, she's been very open about her issues in a manner that's somehow simultaneously impressively self-aware and yet still completely oblivious. She once wrote, I'm an uptown girl stuck in a midtown life. I was raised in opulence. My standards are ridiculously high. We can't afford that lifestyle, but when you grow up with a silver spoon, it's hard to go plastic. It's no mystery why I have money problems. I grew up rich beyond anyone's wildest dreams. I never knew anything else. 
even when I try to embrace a simpler lifestyle, I can't seem to let go of my expensive tastes. Even when my tastes aren't fancy, they're still costly. I moved houses to simplify my life, but lost almost a million dollars along the way. So because of Tori's proven track record of profligacy, when Aaron died, he left only 800000 of his $500 million estate to Tori, as well as her brother, entrusting instead the bulk to his wife of 40 years, Candy, who is Tori's biological mother. Despite being provided with material wealth, a career, and basically anything else she could possibly ask for by her father, it's debatable whether great wealth has actually been a positive influence in Tori Spelling's life. This is a concern that's actually shared by many wealthy families. Though money provides material, education, and security, you can also twist a family's world of view through the lens of the dreaded disease, affluenza. And um, you can check out the recently Oscar-nominated film Knives Out, which I actually just saw this weekend, hmm. um, for a really funny and uh, still chilling fictionalized example of sort of affluenza taken to the nth degree. Um, where opinions diverge is where the threshold of too much actually sits and what can really be done about it. Uh, so, Amy, how can advisors start to help wealthy clients' families address these issues? I think it helps to start with a conversation with the family about what kind of legacy do you want to have? Tori has a legacy here. It may not be the one that she was hoping for, but it is a legacy nonetheless. When advisors can speak with the moms and the dads about the behaviors that they're putting in place, then I think they're starting to speak to who these kids are becoming. It was Warren Buffett that said, the issue with entitlement or affluenza has less to do with the kids and more to do with the behaviors of the parents. The inheritance they grow up with is not the issue, but it's what they're modeling that becomes the problem. So when I'm talking to advisors and we talk to advisors every day about how they can start to spot these red flags and what they can do with it, we really have them talk to the parents about what is the impact they want this wealth to have on their kids and to be more intentional about how that gets operationalized instead of just drifting. Um, I know one, one advisor came to me and he said he knew there was a problem because the son who was maybe about 10 asked his dad when they were traveling across the country what all these people were doing on his airplane. But actually they were traveling <laughs> on a commercial flight the kid had never traveled commercial. And that's when the kid, real, when the dad realized, oh, I'm creating a monster here. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's really looking at their own actions. And it's important to realize also that this is not, this is a, an individualized problem. It's not a one size fits all situation. Yeah. I think uh, when we say affluenza, obviously affluenza kid um, pops into everyone's head who, who used it as a defense, as a psychological uh, disease, as a defense for a criminal act or the, the idea of like sort of the trust fund baby who's like completely ruined. But there's a million different types of affluenza that can affect people of all backgrounds. I mean, you can see that maybe in a first generation family, an immigrant moves to this country, builds his business and has children, but maybe he hasn't, he's busy building the business and the fortune, doesn't have much time to spend with the kids. And by the time he gets around to parenting, the kids are 40. Right. And that's yeah. a different type of affluenza because dad's not there and they don't know what's going on. But maybe dad still wants them to grow up like he did, you know, like hard scrabble. And, yeah. and you end up with this weird decision of like, these kids know there's money. He doesn't want to give it to them. They can't really communicate why to each other. No. And they can't talk about money either. Um, these kids, I interview all of them and, and very often they are stymied. They find themselves stalled. 
because they know they're not going to make the kind of wealth that dad made. They're growing up in a different environment where there is a different level of need. When dad was making this money, there wasn't enough food on the table. He couldn't afford a house for his kids. So he was motivated by different forces. I'd say one of the most sobering moments in my career was talking to a dad who was actually a billionaire. And he said to me, you know, I can give my kids anything, but I can't give them desperation. And that was the moment where he realized his responsibility to the wealth was not to give them everything they need, but to help them see how they can be a contribution in society or into the family. And that may not be measured in dollars. Yeah. But it's also, you can see how two-way street it is, right? Because even though that's an awesome quote, they don't necessarily need desperation exactly. They maybe need a little urgency. Yeah. But for the father to see that, no, well, my kids are having a different life than I had. And they can still be very successful and fully realized people yeah. without having that desperation necessarily. Exactly. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's definitely a two-way street where the, family, the, the parents and the children and the entire family, frankly, yeah. need to understand each other. Completely. There's no... Can't, it's very hard to place the blame, on, especially like here. Oh, it's sure. hard to blame Tory Spelling or Aaron Spelling. No one's, they're both at fault, but nobody's at fault in a weird way. Yeah, it's sort of a two-way street. And, you know, I will say that the responsibility in my interpretation is with the parents to be able to have these conversations. It is also with the children to be able to be speaking freely. You know, how, where do they learn how to speak honestly and openly? There's another situation where I'm working with a family now, and the son is literally stymied. He doesn't know which way to go. He's been educated by the top school. The business was sold. And we're now looking at two years where he's just in limbo. What he really wants to do, he's embarrassed to say, because it's not working in a hedge fund. It's not working in some really flashy line of work. Uh, so how does he go to his dad and say, look, what I really want to do is join the Peace Corps? Um, but can't have that conversation because it's never been accepted. Mm-hmm. And that's really where the idea of legacy comes in, right? I mm-hmm. think we use the term legacy a lot when we're talking about philanthropy and values like that, but it could also just be, you know, what the family image is and what, and what the wealth is going to mean to that family. And for some families, that is the family image and that is being this paragon of yeah. virtue or whatever. But for other families, it's, I've made this money so that my family can now do what makes them happy. And that right. will be our legacy is our legacy is happy children who, you know, because they don't have to worry about money can then apply their talents however they would like and live happy lives. Yeah. And that, I hear that a lot where mom and dad are like, you know what? You don't have to suffer. You don't have this desperation. We want you to be happy where the advisor can help is to get more granular on what happy means. Does happy mean I can go surfing every day? Does happy mean I can sleep until midnight and then go out? Um, so getting operational or getting more clarity on the standard of what we mean. So when an advisor says to a mom or a dad, what are your expectations on what you'd like to see your kids do with this wealth? That can sometimes reveal some interesting perspectives. And it also can reveal this mixed message. Another family we're working with had something called the walk of shame where dad had bought them beautiful homes and they were driving beautiful cars and they were doing what makes them happy. One was a substitute teacher. Another one was working in as a nurse um, practitioner. And they were happy, but every month they'd have to go back to dad to get money to pay for their lifestyle. And dad would give it to them, but there was always a little bit of a, well, what'd you do with it last time? And what's your, what are you going to do with it this time? So they called it the walk of shame. 
and it was dad was well intended he was really not aware of this kind of double-edged message coming across so once the kids could really get clear on where was that line of entitlement versus engagement everything got easier in the family and relationships got stronger yeah, and that's a big question of sort of, of whose money is this, right? Is this yeah. family money or is this dad's money? Yeah. Or you know, what's going on? There's an ownership question yeah. that really needs to be worked out, uh, I think, in these families. 100%. And when an advisor can ask the father or the mom, so whose money is this in the trust, for example, another family, they've each got a good amount of money, over $20 million in a trust. The whole reason they wanted to meet me was to figure out whose money is this. So I asked the dad, so whose money is this? And he'd say, it's theirs, but it comes with strings. Yeah. So his, his mouth says it's theirs, but yeah. his actions say it's mine. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so the advisor can help by asking the mom and the dad, what are the strings? Have a meeting with the kids and say, here's the criteria. If you want to borrow X amount of dollars, it's got to come with this kind of information. If you want 200000 to do an addition on your home, I want at least three um, bids for that. So helping to clarify the expectations and the strings will make it easier for the advisor to get connected to the next gen. Yeah, and this is, you know, we often talk about things like family infrastructure. Um, and this is sort of why they're so important. I mean, obviously, if you have, you know, you're lucky enough to work with families of multi-generational wealth, mm -hmm. they'll likely have some of that infrastructure in place. And that will make a lot of these things hopefully easier if it's good infrastructure. But if it's maybe the first generation wealthy family, you need to focus more on building the sort of infrastructure that allows this communication to happen and this dialogue. You know, so it's a little less, it'll be a little less automated, hopefully, than it is for a sort of second generation, third generation wealthy family. I think it's one thing to have this infrastructure that you're talking about, and that's important. Equally important is how they work within the infrastructure. So, for example, in the spelling story, um, clearly the kids grew up in a very affluent lifestyle. And the lessons to learn how to live on 800,000 started when they were adults. So there may have been this structure in place then, but starting to teach the kids at a much younger age of how to make good decisions is really what the kids want. When I interview these kids, what they want is more time with mom and dad to be able to have these conversations about is this a good investment? They end up not having the conversation because it's just hard for families to talk about money. Or every time they go to mom or dad with a question, they get shot down with a no. It's one of those things that, that makes me chuckle in a way that we use the term kids very fluidly mm -hmm. um, in these conversations it's because um, the kids can be 10 years old on their first commercial flight and oblivious. The kids can be 50 yes. and have worked in the business for 30 years. Yeah. Um, and those are both still the kids and, and, right. and what communication looks like and what you as an advisor have to do to, to engage that communication is obviously going to be very different mm -hmm. for a 50 year old man child than it is for a 10 year old <laughs> actual child. So let's start with the young kids. I think, you know, the actual traditional definition of kids. If I'm an advisor, what are some techniques I could use? Obviously, the 10 year old is not going to speak up on his own, likely. Yeah. Um, so what can you do to start getting that, you know, encouraging the parents to sort of hear what that 10 year old needs to here and, and make sure they tell him what he needs to know or she needs to know. Yeah, we're, we're in the realm of the art and science of learning how to ask exactly. questions. Yeah. So very often the people who create this kind of wealth, they do it because they have a lot of the answers or they have a lot of control or they know that they have to do it on their own. 
So asking questions doesn't always come naturally to them, especially inside their own family where they're seen as the one with the, all the answers. So helping mom and dad come up with some good questions for the 10-year-olds. One good question is to ask them, you know, when they listen to a TV show or if they can repeat what they heard at school, what moved them? What did they find really impacted them? Or what did they get excited about? Or what did they get sad about? Sometimes in families when the kids are that age, I've heard them, they, a new gift comes in the house, a new stuffed animal, say, and the mom and dad might say, okay, so which of the other stuffed animals do we want to give to a local charity? So it can start that young. Um, sometimes just having conversations around the dinner table naturally that might come up and then mom and dad could turn to the children at the table and say, what, what do you think about what we're talking about? They know more than they let on. They just need a space to say it. Yeah, I think that is very important to, to back up. Um, a lot of times, these, they're not idiots, these kids. Mm -hmm. I've spoken to a number of sort of heirs of wealthy families, and I always ask them the same question because I'm always curious about when their parents told them they had money. Because mm -hmm. I, I think I find there's, you know, if you speak to 10 advisors, you have 10 different opinions about like when's the right time to tell the kid about how much. Um, and we can unpack that maybe after I mention this, but it, and, and a lot of them will just say like, I didn't need to be told we had money. Uh, I, I just, you know, we, I went to my friend's birthday parties. <laughs> like, you know, I have eyes. Right. You know, I didn't quite know the extent to which we were different, but I very much knew in my 10-year-old mind's eye that I could see that they had less than we had, or at least they had different than we had. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I think the kids are much more equipped generally, and obviously, again, every kid is different, to sort of have more complex conversations about money than, than we give them credit for. They're a little yeah. more clued in than you'd oh, think. Oh, 100%. You know, I ask them that question when I meet them, when did you know you were wealthy? And they you often say, well, it was always, we had the biggest backyard so all the kids could play here. Or we went on trips with airplanes and nobody else did. They know. They just don't know how to bring it up and nobody's talking about it until it's too late. You know, when, I, when you ask me what can advisors do, they can really insist on having the proactive conversations with mom and dad to start getting the kids ready before it's too late because it's much harder to have these conversations when mom and dad are on the other side of the daisies. So okay. to speak. Well, obviously you fall on the tell them younger side of the equation of, of advisors that I just mentioned on the sort of Benetton rainbow of uh, when to tell kids how much money their family has. Um, and you've also used the interesting term before it's too late. Um, do you believe that there is a point where it is too late? We've mentioned that kids can be sort of the 10-year-old child. Is there any hope for the 50-year-old man-child, or is it just oh, a no. lost cause and you're doing damage control at that point? No, 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 no. I, I do think it's never too late for them to learn. We get that question all the time, how much do I give them and when? Mm -hmm. And we say it's not about the number because, A, we don't know when the wealth will actually transfer, so we don't know how much there will be. What we talk about is how to be wealthy in a responsible way. So questions like, what is the purpose of the wealth? Who are they becoming inside this family? Um, do they have a sense of the expectations? Do they have a voice in how the wealth impacts their own lives? We had a family where there was a daughter, family was very wealthy, and she frankly didn't want to get a lot of gifts given to her kids because it was complicating her life. So she had to make a request back to mom and dad that said, hey, keep the gifts under $200. Mm. Um, so sometimes it's not, it's often not about how much, it's more about 
who are they becoming and how are they living the values of the family? Yeah, and I think your example of, of the gift giving illustrates how there really can be a trickle down effect of, of not having these conversations and, and not getting this information straightened out. Because if the parents have raised a 50 year old who doesn't have a really appreciation for his money and is sort of uh, has affluenza, I guess is the term we used, then it's very likely that 50 year old has children who also hasn't prepared mm-hmm. and they're going to just be a further generation. And it is a thing that sort of compounds on itself the more it's left alone and the family spreads yeah. out yeah, and then you get more and more all of a sudden people with influenza and the money spreading out more and more to different people than waste it. Exactly. And you know, when you ask me, when is it too late? There is a moment when it's too late. When we work with families, we have two criteria. The first is that they're willing to learn mm-hmm. because like you say, they don't just inherit the wealth, they inherit the communication system and practices. And they are, they tend to just drift over time. They get them from the people who came before them. The second thing is they have to care about each other. And at some point when they've been living in this not knowing or this state of resignation, they eventually don't care. And then that's when the doors swing wide open for litigation. Mm. Even though there might be a no contest clause, I've seen people say, I don't care. This is about my dignity. This is about being heard and I'm going to be heard now. Yeah, I mean, I think so much of state litigation yeah. at the end of the day is almost you almost need it would be better used having a psychologist on hand than you would having attorneys be involved yeah. because a lot of the times the fight over you know even if it's hundreds of millions of dollars it's less about the hundred million dollars and more right. like pay attention to me daddy or you know yeah i want this bike because that's you know just because i need to be heard you know? i know and you know what the work that we do with families is about learning how to build and observe trust mom and dad often ask that question, how much do I give them and when? Because they don't trust that the wealth isn't going to derail them. Mm. So they put a number on it. They say it's 30 or they say it's 40. And then we end up with a bunch of waiters, people just waiting till they turn that age. So I don't think it's necessarily an age alone. I think that's part of the equation. But it's really about education. It's teaching families for the good of the future generations how they can have these conversations in productive ways that they don't trust themselves to have right now. Because then the future generations that aren't born yet are growing up inside of a healthier communication structure. So what happens in these situations where mom and dad don't agree on these issues? Yeah, it's a great question. And it happens more often than not um, that people would be surprised. So that's usually indicative of another question around purpose of the wealth. We had a situation where dad wanted to take more of the money and put it into his investments that were on the risk scale, probably a nine or a 10, really, really risky. That was affecting how the mom would be able to invest and pass wealth on to her kids. So she wasn't supportive of what the dad wanted to do. That When they're not on the same page, it's usually a red flag about other things that they're not on the same page. We don't have a conversation with them about their positions. We come back to a bigger conversation of for the sake of what is this wealth? What's the impact you want it to have on the kids? And so when we get away from the numbers and we focus more on who these kids are becoming and these adults becoming, then they tend to start to see each other's position and they can agree. Um, We make a distinction between agreement and alignment. Agreement suggests that 50% of the conversation, somebody's going to lose. 
in alignment, they can both make modifications on either side when they agree on a North Star. You know, when they can say, yeah, this is a shared purpose. We're going to go for that. Our path there might be different, but we're in alignment about where we're going. And you, know, you mentioned the, you know, forget about the numbers. And thing we have been sort of talking this entire conversation about, for lack of a better term, sort of soft topics, mm-hmm. right? That's for an advisor. So some of our listeners may be sitting there like, well, you know, I, I'm an investment manager. I run Monte Carlo simulations or like I'm an old school estate tax guy. And, you know, and that's all well and good. But we're getting to the point in time where computers can do more and more of that, or everyone has the capabilities to do these things. Even the clients, a lot of the time, have the capabilities if they really wanted to, to do these things on their own. The way that advisors and, and, and attorneys can add value is by engaging now in these softer topics and, and the, adding the human element that is not going to be able to be replicated and, and, and worked away by, by machines or, or by you know the, the spreading of the technology to, to homes. And so, you know, it's important for advisors to even just keep listening to these sort of topics and to engage, even though we say communication, 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 you roll your eyes, that it is important now. And this is where the industry is going, where you know, people who want to differentiate and find their niche, it is in these softer topics. I agree. And it's not always within the training of the advisors, right? They come to these conversations as the expert. They're being consulted because, frankly, the client thinks they have the answers. And so over time, they get really good at knowing a lot. These conversations require they don't know. These conversations require that they get really good at asking difficult questions and then being able to hold the space of the answer. So often I get questions, where does the advisor slash psychologist line lie? How do they know when they've gone too far? I think it's important to say to the clients, you know, we've done a great job preparing your assets for the family. I'd like to pivot now and talk about how do we prepare the family for the assets. And so let's just ask a bunch of questions here that we may or may not have the answer to, but the exploration of those answers is where the magic lies. Questions like, um, what would it look like if this wealth had the impact on your family that you wanted it to have? When we ask questions about what it would look like, we call those vision questions. Mm -hmm. They tend to create a more forward-looking, a more um, innovative solution. But if we ask somebody, what did you think? What do you think the impact of this wealth is going to be? They're going to look back at their history. So just by changing the horizon of time, you're giving yourself permission to ask questions that nobody has the answer to. Yeah, I guess what you're saying is you want to ask questions that then lead to more questions. You know, yeah. we've kind of said in, in this discussion that you know every family is different and every case of affluence is different, but that doesn't mean you have to start from a different place. You can have these base questions, like you just said, that then spread out differently for each family, but it also you can have just, here's my 10 questions I give to every family, and then it, it just for each family, it's going to go in a wildly different direction, right. but there's, you can have the same starting point a lot of the time. It's not as overwhelming uh, an endeavor initially, as it may seem, the way we're describing, having to relate to all of these different families. They'll do a lot of the work for you once Absolutely. you put the questions in front of them. And actually, we have 10 questions that advisors use to cover those three core areas that we know families need to pay attention to. And we're talking a lot about trust and communication. There's also this whole area of air preparedness. That doesn't mean that they're looking for how do I read a portfolio statement. That's really their relationship to wealth. When we jump in an Uber, does everybody share that? Or because they know I'm the wealthiest person, do I just pick up the tab? 
when we're talking about adults that are wealthy and grew up with wealth, is it that they pick up the tab for dinner every time, or they can only go on vacation when they're caught, when certain friends can come? How do they navigate that balance? Um, and then we also ask questions about the purpose, like the values and the mission of the family. If you ask any question in either one of those domains, you're going to get the wheels turning and start these conversations before it's too late. Unfortunately, we're running out of time here, but I, I'd like to thank our guest, Amy Castor, for being really great and for coming on the show. Thank you, Amy. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. And uh, that's all the time we have, folks. So uh, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me on the next episode of the Dead Celebrity Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Dead Celebrity Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Support for today's podcast is brought to you by FS Investments. Finding income for your clients is tough. FS Investments makes it easier by designing solutions that help investors reach their income goals and secure their futures. FS Investments never settles, so advisors and investors won't have to either. Visit fsinvestments.com slash deadcelebrities and discover what it means to never settle. This is not an offer to buy securities. Investors are advised to consider investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing.